Okay, well, those of you who've been around for a while will know that in our preaching program, teaching program, whatever you like to call it, I try to alternate between the Old and the New Testaments and to switch between different genres as well. Um, So we looked briefly in the period leading up to Easter uh, at Mark's Gospel. Uh, Prior to that, we'd worked through the book of Philippians. And before that, some of you will remember that a year or two ago, we worked through the book of Daniel. Um, And I felt God was really speaking as we did that. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to return to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the book of Ezra. Um, I think in 43 years, I've only heard one, maybe two sermons on Ezra. Um, So I've not got much to draw on, really. It's not a book that many Christians, I think, have even read, although I might be maligning you there, apart from those of us who read through the whole Bible sequentially, which is a practice I'd commend to you and one that I've kept up for the last 20 years. So... If you don't know where Ezra is in your Bible, because if you're too proud to look in the index, it will take you about half an hour to find it. It is there, where the the red thing is flashing. Okay? So if you go through, that's where you'll find it. Ezra comes right near the end of the Old Testament narrative. Most of the books that follow it are prophetic or what are called the writings or wisdom literature. Um, It follows on quite neatly from where we left off in Daniel a year or so ago. Um, And in terms of the Old Testament narrative, this is my rough guide to the Old Testament. Uh, Ignore the dates on the top, they're not quite right. Um, This is a slide I produced a number of years ago, um, and it uses a rather dated dating schema. Um, So... We have the Old Testament narrative along there, and Ezra comes right at the end of it, over there on the right-hand side. Uh, It's right at the end of the Old Testament narrative. It's the last bit that we hear of. Ezra and Nehemiah are the last bit that we hear about before we get to the New Testament. Um, Just for completeness' sake... A lot of people will tell you that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, although in our canon they're presented as two different books. I can't get too excited about whether they're one or two. They were quite frequently on the same scroll uh, in Jewish synagogues. So, let's read chapter 1 of Ezra before we go any further. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads... Sorry, I've done it a verse early there. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites... Everyone whose heart God had moved 
prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all of these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Amen. Please don't get too hung up about the fact that the items of crockery don't exactly add up to 5,400. Um, I'm sure some of you are sitting there thinking, but that doesn't add up to 5,400. If you are thinking that, you're too much like me and you ought to be really worried. Right, imagine the scene. We join up with the other Jewish folk in Babylon on the Sabbath as normal. Our grandparents came here about 70 years ago when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and took all the people of substance in Judah into exile, along with a lot more than, I think, 5,400 pieces of temple silver and gold. And our families have been here ever since, living in a rather strange kind of in-between world, not quite belonging here and not fully accepted by the Babylonians, yet unable to live in our own land either. A bit like Julian Assange without the criminality. (laughs) Trying to hold on to our Jewish distinctives and in the teeth of opposition from Nebuchadnezzar and some of his people over the years, then Belshazzar and Nabonidus, we've never quite felt that we belong. But it's also all we've ever known. Apart from the stories our grandparents and perhaps our parents told and songs they sang about life in Jerusalem. And then a year ago, suddenly, the Persian king, Cyrus, invaded Babylonia and took over. For some of the older people, that name Cyrus seemed vaguely familiar. And as we've gathered, Sabbath by Sabbath, ever since then, Various of the older people have been dragging up from their memories bits and pieces from the scriptures, particularly the prophets. They've been getting excited that something's about to happen. First of all, maybe, Avram, a rather cantankerous and pedantic old so-and-so. He's fictional, by the way, he's not in scripture. (laughs) Reminded everybody that they've been misquoting a passage from Jeremiah for years. Something's not happening. Here we go. 
It's Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. It says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. That's Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, Avram tended to go on a bit about this passage, a bit like another cantankerous and pandantic guy called Greg, who would do this many years later. He reminded us how we'd been quoting the bit about God having plans to prosper us and make us thrive, while ignoring the bit about spending 70 years in exile first. But despite his crankiness, he reminded us that this period of exile, according to the prophet Jeremiah, was going to last 70 years. And he pointed out that we've been here now for about 70 years. Perhaps he also remembered another passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, which says this, This whole country, Judah, will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. It's worth noting, Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild Babylon and failed. Then maybe old Yitzhak, who has a capacity for remembering obscure bits of scripture, or it might have been his wife Rebecca, remembered a passage from Isaiah, which says this, Isaiah 44. It says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Could it really be that about 200 years ago, Isaiah had really heard from God that a king called Cyrus would be raised up and that he could be and that he would cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt could it be and could it be that our exile is about to end because this morning Zerubbabel has come along very excited Zerubbabel's real and has some amazing news for us 
Yesterday, this Cyrus, the Persian king, modern-day Iran, decreed that any of us who want to can return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple there. Not only that, but all the gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar nicked and put in his museum is going to be sent back with us. But wait, as Jimmy Carson used to say, there's more. (laughs) What is more? Oh, yes. All our neighbours have got to give us money as well to cover our expenses in going back. All at once, people are getting really excited and volunteering to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And back they go. Over 50,000 of them. If you read chapter 2, it gives you the list. And we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah how worship is restored, how the temple is rebuilt, and how the walls of the city are restored. Jerusalem is refortified. You can actually see, this is one of these places in Scripture that connects very directly to, to recorded history. You can see, and I've seen it, this. Anyone know what this is? It's not sweet corn. Sorry? Yeah, anybody could be a bit more precise? No. No. It's what's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's in the British Museum. I've seen it and spent about half an hour looking at it. Because I'm a bit sad. (laughs) Uh, And this stone tells the story of how Cyrus sent the captive peoples peoples in Babylon back to their homelands and how he wanted them to pray to their gods on his behalf and to restore their temples. So this book of Ezra, what we read here, connects very directly to something, we can't touch it, it's in a glass case, but something that we can see and almost touch, something very tangible. And the book of Ezra then goes on, after chapter 1, to describe what happened when they returned to Jerusalem. uh, And we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks. So what, I hear you say. So what? What does this bit of ancient history have to do with us? Well, I think it tells us a number of things that we need to grasp hold of. Um... And I also think it speaks into some of the situations that we find ourselves in here in the 21st century. And some of that might get a little bit controversial, but as you know, I always steer clear of controversy. (laughs) And much of this follows on from what we saw in Daniel. Um, And Daniel, remember, the big question of Daniel was, who's in charge? I love it when something I preached a couple of years ago, people still remember. That's far more encouraging than someone saying to you afterwards, lovely word, Greg. So, the first thing that we learn in here is, is this battery all right in here? There we are. First thing we see is that God is doing something bigger than what we see. Life had been difficult for God's people in Babylon. It was no picnic, as we can see in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel and his friends 
between them had suffered various forms of persecution, mistreatment, but God had vindicated them in all of them. Yet, despite the fact that life there was difficult, God was still at work. Israel has broken its covenant with God to the extent that God has said through the prophets that he was divorcing Israel. Those of you who think not, Isaiah 50 verse 1 and Jeremiah 3 verse 8. In this period of exile, God was at work in his people, humbling them and bringing them to the point where they could return to the land, where they could once again be restored to the covenant that he, the promise that he had made to them. What is going on around you and around me and around us in the whole world at the moment is part of something bigger than we see. Far bigger than what we see. And one of the problems with evangelical Christianity is that we get so concerned with me and mine and my needs that we forget that actually God is doing something bigger. So God is big. Which leads us on to the second one, which is that God is faithful. Really upsets the timing, doesn't it? When you click the thing and nothing happens. God is faithful to his word. I find this amazing, actually. There are, of course, people who claim that the passage about Cyrus was inserted into the text after the event. But they don't argue on the basis of any real textual evidence, save that it's not possible to tell the future, so it could obviously not have been there originally. But what I find awesome and extraordinary, and I use awesome in the English sense, not the American sense, where it just means quite good, What I find awesome, sorry, we lived in North America for a year and I still have to explain that every time I use the word. What I find extraordinary and awesome here is that God spoke through a prophet 200 years roughly earlier, naming Cyrus and pointing out that Cyrus, this conquering, particularly vicious king, was actually God's agent in all of this. Well, I find it extraordinary. Obviously, nobody else does, but I find it quite extraordinary. I also find it quite extraordinary that he spoke through Jeremiah, spelling out how long the exile in Babylon was going to be, and promising that it would end with their return to Jerusalem. And then, there's more, as Jimmy would have said, And then he fulfills both of those promises. I find that quite remarkable. That stuff that goes on, you know, if if someone here brought a prophetic word about something happening next week and it happened, we'd all be amazed, wouldn't we? We we wouldn't have 15 second testimonies, would we, Mike? We'd have 30 people up here (laughs) doing half hour testimonies about how God had fulfilled his word over the space of a week. This is over the space of 200 years and a 70-year captivity at the hands of the most powerful king on earth. 